welcome to the Catching Health Podcast. I'm Diane Atwood, your own personal health reporter. Have you had the talk with your kids yet? You know, the one where you teach them everything you think they need to know about sex in one setting, and then you heave this huge sigh of relief and pat yourself on the back for getting through it? Well, guess what? Teaching your kids about sex and sexuality should be an ongoing endeavor. Jennifer Wiesner believes it's an endeavor that should begin very early on, and she's here to share some wisdom with us on just how to do that. Jennifer is a licensed clinical social worker and a sex therapist certified by the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. She has a private therapy practice in Cumberland, Maine, where she works with adults and couples on issues of intimacy, relationships, sex, sexual medicine, and gender. She also offers workshops for parents, teachers, physicians, and adults who work with children on raising sexually healthy children. And she happens to be the mother of two young boys, and so I expect that she practices what she preaches. Do you? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Diane. I try to. I truly make it my effort. As you can imagine, my kids expect me to in the job that I do. (laughs) Absolutely. I remember when I started to try to talk to my kids, I was like a deer in the headlights. Yeah, and most parents are. If it's not something that you grew up with, it's certainly going to be terribly unfamiliar and in our culture, very uncomfortable. But I had the stack of books beside my bed telling me how to handle things, you know, every step of the way. And I remember one time I was in the middle of trying to explain something. I don't even think it had to do with sex. I think it had to do with siblings getting along. And I froze and I thought, oh, my God, I just read this passage in the book. What was it it said I'm supposed to say? (laughs) (laughs) It's not an easy subject to navigate for sure. So at what age should you begin to do something? I mean, you can't really have a conversation, can you, with a toddler about sex, but what can you do? Well, you know, it is, like I said, it's a topic that sends so many parents running for cover or wishing they could bury their head in the sand. And I think the definitions and topic of sex comes later than teaching about sexuality, especially for that younger age group, say, let's talk about birth to eight years. That's often how I break up my workshops is birth to eight years. And then the other workshop is for um, the parents, educators and providers of nine to 14 years. So for for the service today in, in people getting hopefully something that they can take away, we'll focus on birth to eight. Is that okay, Diane? That's, That's perfect. Fine. That's fine. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, the way that I view sexuality education, of course, coming from a positive perspective, but it comes from the time that babies are born. As infants, our children, they observe the way we hold them, the way we touch them, the way we diaper them, and it shows them that they're loved and their bodies and all of their parts are valuable. And so the way that we nurture our child's curiosity about their bodies and how we then positively react to them, and in that curiosity encourages and strengthens healthy sexuality. So it's really best to take a different perspective because I hear this all the time. You know, it's, oh my God, I'm talking to my three-year-old about sex, but rather I'm talking to my three-year-old about healthy touch, boundaries, stranger safety, touching one own's body, and that'll lays the foundation for later scaffolding developmentally appropriate information about healthy sexuality and eventually sex. So do you somehow start the conversation then 
Or is it you're just talking about your actions in the beginning? Yeah, yeah. It's modeling behavior as parents. Um, certainly our children are getting everything from us just by watching before they really have language. And then from there, it's even about... Um, you know, you can start with toddlers by instructing them about boundaries around touching and taking things. You can help them learn boundaries and safety around speaking up when they feel unsafe. Um, as parents, we, we also need to be there to be askable and to be ready to field their questions because there are very precocious three-year-olds that will come with questions. You know, how did the baby get in there? You know, how did, you know, all those types of questions, you know, or, or, you know, look at my, you know, they, hopefully they have language around their body parts, but you know, my penis, it's standing up. Like they have these questions, they're ready for that information. And so we need to be there to guide them with that age appropriate information. And then of course, um, really just that then helps instill an understanding that consent is the basis for all sexual activity. So I'm a big believer in that. The topics of consent can be taught from such a young age. And if we do that, wow, that could really go a long way as they enter into adolescence and into adulthood and going into college and the rest of their lives. I like what you said about coming from a, a positive point of view. Can yes. you expound on that a little bit? I can. Um, I think a lot of traditional sex education has come from um, almost a sex negative place and also really doesn't provide a context of how amazing our bodies are and how amazing the things that it can do, we often focus on the do and the don't. I sit as a therapist with many a woman who has said to me, you know, all I ever learned was how to say no, but no one ever taught me how to say yes. And so in, in teaching children about consent, we're, we're teaching a lot of different things. We're teaching the no's, but we're also teaching when it's okay to say yes, when it's okay to touch me, when it's okay to have a hug. Um, you know, we want to make sure that we're teaching both sides of that. And so the positive piece is your body is this amazing machine. And we want to make sure that if we teach children from a young age that their body has value, it's amazing, it's special, it's, has, um, it's, it's worthy, then when things as they grow feel uncomfortable, behavior or other people's reactions to them feel unsafe or coercive or unhealthy, we will have built that inner muscle around healthy sexuality so they'll know that doesn't feel right historically, I think we've taught the opposite. We know how to look from the inward out to say that's bad, but we never really are taught what is good. So, so they under good. they'll understand what good feels like, what right. it looks like, and yes. they will also feel safe with you yes. and be able to come to you and say something. Right, hmm. right. So what do you do about the great aunt? who comes and, uh, you know, smothers you with sloppy kisses and just can't get enough of you. You don't want to hurt her feelings, but you want the child to understand that he or she can say, no, I don't want that right now. And it's okay. Yeah. And that goes into that consent topic around the last thing we want to associate is, um, coercion 
with intimacy and affection. And so although it may not feel coercive, but for a young child who's being told, you know, Aunt Sally, you know, go kiss Aunt Sally, and they're repelling that, they're like, no, no, no. And then we're making them do that. That's that's really like a brain scramble for a young child, especially if you've already started conversations around your body belongs to you. And then you're saying your body belongs to you, except, <laughs> except when someone in authority tells you something different. And that is not a message that we want to send. So the best way to deal with that is to, a um, couple of ways. One, you can educate the adult who might feel, um, you know, put out that they're not getting that obligatory hug, right. but you can educate them on, um, you know, Hey, we're teaching little Jane about, um, boundaries and staying safe and, and, you know, out with strangers. So we're helping her learn that by doing it with family members. And so, you know, it might be helpful if, you know, you ask her if she wants to give a high five instead or a handshake. Um, so that's sort of the other end of it, sort of teaching the adults in the child's life. And then also teaching your child that it's okay to trust that inner instinct about what you want and what you don't want with regards to touch. I had never thought about that, to engage the other adult. Because, you know, I think a lot of us want to avoid conflict. And it's easier to just sort of uh, turn a blind eye. It's just Aunt Sally sure, or, or right. whomever. I mean, when it's Uncle Harry, it's different. But we have to teach them that anybody who approaches you, even if it's your grandmother or your aunt, and wants something that you don't feel comfortable giving, you've got to be able to respond to that. Okay. Right. And, and I think we can teach adults that, you know, I said that I started this conversation by saying the last thing we want to do is associate obligation with any type of intimacy. And, you know, we're helping her teach that by we want her to give what she feels in the moment and she's up for and in the mood for or OK for versus giving because someone tells her to. Mm. Yeah. Now, you mentioned a bit ago about modeling behavior, and it made me think about how um, couples behave sometimes and behave in front of their kids, sometimes without even thinking. So what are some things that we should think about? Um, it's funny you bring that up. I, I usually will say in my workshops that I say, as a couples therapist, this is my public service announcement <laughs> around um, recognizing and remind, and just reminding and, and remembering that um, we as parents, if we are in a two-parent household, that any intimacy showed between us, that is our child's first witnessing of what intimacy looks like. And so I just ask the parents to think about what does your intimacy look like at home? And is it something, is that what you want to teach your child? Is that what you want them to grow up with? And if it's not, consider that this is what they are absorbing. And that's a really important thing, I think, to remember um, because that's what they're going to take into their adult lives. I've sat with many, like I can't even count how many adults who have said to me when I ask in a sexual profile, which I give to all of my therapy clients, and I ask them about what, what did the intimacy um, look like between your parents if they were together or if you, know, if you had two parents in the home. And so many people will say, I never saw my parent um, you know, touch my parent, other parent, or engage in any intimacy. And they, they will almost always tell me that that affected them. Hmm. Yeah, you get, you find you're surprised that, that they ever even had sex and had kids. 
yeah. you can't even yeah. imagine it. So it's, it's healthy to be able to um, help kids to understand that mom and dad have their private time, and that's what it is, and that they love each other, and so they may show other types of affection in front of people, and sometimes that's okay. Yeah, and I think normalizing, um, you know, what, you know, public public displays of affection is healthy. To have. so, kids will learn nothing about relationships, you know, but from when they're in their early years from their parents. And so, how are they else are they going to learn these things if they don't see them? And so, if they see um, two parents who are, um, you know, they touch occasionally, they hold hands, they have you know, communication that is respectful, um, that they um, hold each other, they hug each other, showing love is okay. Like that's going to be their template. If they never see it, well, that may be their template too. Wow. Parents really need to be able to get their acts together. Yeah. And, you know, you brought something up earlier, um, Diane, right at the beginning when you were talking about sort of that stack of books that you said you had that was supposed to tell you everything. Um, (laughs) You know, I I read a lot of those books, and interestingly, after reading those books, what came out of them was I realized that there's tons of books out there that will talk about all the different ways, you know, here's the script to say this, here's the time that you say this developmentally, they talk all about that, but what I found that was missing, and then I created something of my own, is how do I know what I want to say? Because if we haven't checked in with our own values around sexuality, our own baggage, our own experiences from childhood in our upbringing, if we haven't really checked in with those things before we start talking to our kids, we may be passing that stuff on, especially if it's stuff that isn't so great. We sometimes default to it. So my big focus has been um, asking, I created a document that I call the get in touch with your values document. And it's an acronym touch. And it's about getting in touch with your own values today. How do you feel about sexuality? How do you feel about intimacy? Um, what are, what were your experiences growing up? Are you, if you're parenting together, are you and your parent, other parent on the same page? Like all of these value questions, because your values are the one thing that you as a parent can give to your child that no one else can. Not sex ed at school, not my workshops, mine, you know, values are a place of the parent or the person who's rearing this child. And so if we haven't checked in with those as adults, we might be dragging the same old values that we had from when we were young that may not fit so well in our rearing of our children today. So some parents might say, hey, my parents never told me anything and I turned out fine. Yes, that's one of the myths I use in my workshop, and that's true. Some parents will say, um, you know, I actually use an exercise where I say, okay, so you all you all showed up tonight. You all look like functional people. <laughs> you know, many of you are parents, have jobs, whatever. And I and I said, so you could maybe assume that you all quote turned out okay. And then I turn the question around and I say, okay, now I'm going to ask it differently. How many of you going through childhood and into adolescence and then into your adulthood felt that you had the healthy and enough information that helped you make good decisions about your body and sexuality? And every time at least, you know, eight to nine out of 10 people will shake their heads no and say, absolutely not. And what I say is, do your children deserve more? 
we have many, you know, we have so many different ways that children can get information today. Do we really want to risk that? It's harder than, say, when I was a child, because <laughs> there is such easy access to information that can be alarming, confusing. And if you don't have that relationship with your child where they can feel comfortable coming to you, then that's their knowledge base. Right. Right. Interesting. Um, I wanted to, I'm a former x-ray tech and mm -hmm. I, and I worked for a while at a children's hospital and we used to have to do some x-rays in which we had to have little children go to the bathroom so that the radiologist could watch the flow of urine down through the kidneys and things like that. Nine times out of 10, I would have to ask the parents, what do you call going to the bathroom um, urination and there were words like whistle, whistle, and woo woo, and pee <laughs> pee, and <laughs> yeah. Okay, so um, the same thing applies to body parts. So, uh, but what what is so awful about giving a body part a nickname? Well, you know, I think people have a lot of different ideas about this, and the way that I go with this is nicknames, especially in the case of genitals, suggest secrecy and shame. And so let me ask you this, Diane. Would you call an elbow a bendy? No. <laughs> Why? <laughs> point, point well taken. Yeah. <laughs> That's it, right. It has, a, it has a personal, perfectly functional name. So does a penis, a scrotum, a vagina, a vulva. They all have perfectly, perfectly functional names. And so we just have to, you know, I, I suggest that parents ask themselves, why we would want to give our genitals another name when they have perfectly functional names. And, you know, those alternate names for genitals teach children that there's something wrong with the current name and it can instill shame. And it can also then be a barrier to a child being able to communicate with you as a parent or a provider if there was, say, inappropriate touching or pain or injury to that area. Right. And so um, I work with parents to consider what is hiding underneath that need to call a vulva, vagina, or a penis, or scrotum, or an anus something different. So I, my goal is to reduce the shame in Maine. And so I believe by starting giving children accurate language for their body parts, that is a really great first step. Okay. And so would you say that a lot of times for the adults, it's because they feel embarrassed about their own bodies and their bodily yeah. functions? Yeah. And so that's why, you know, that checking in and that's that values piece. What is this stuff that I'm, excuse me, carrying from my childhood that is getting in the way of my child having that honest, accurate, developmentally appropriate information that they need? So tell us the difference between something that's secret and something that's private. Well, I think the the, um, the secret suggests that it's something that shouldn't be told. And and usually it has something um, in the, the case that I think we're talking about around touching is usually there's some sort of coercion involved. And so private is something usually that's done by ourselves. So that's kind of a little bit of the difference. And I know historically we used to call it good and bad touch. Mm. And now we know that that really wasn't very good labeling because sometimes, sadly, bad touch felt good. And that was really, again, a scramble for kids' brains. And so what they talk now, the talk is um, private versus um, 
public or safe versus unsafe. And so there's some uh, great resources out there. One I use often is uh, kidpower.org around safety and boundaries and as well as touching. And so they, they have a lot of great handouts that are free to people to use. Okay. And it's okay to tell a little kid that certain behaviors that you've seen them doing are okay and they're normal. Mm -hmm. But then you teach them, but it's not something you do in front of everybody. It's something you do in private. In private. And I I also joke with parents that please explain what the word private means to a child, even up to the age of eight years old, because if you ask them what does private mean, most likely they won't be able to tell you what it means. Um, It's one of those words like appropriate Mm -hmm. or inappropriate that they really, there isn't a lot of understanding of what that means. So private means in a room by yourself. And so with regards to self-touch, usually I'll help parents understand that you can tell your child, like, I see that you're touching your penis. I know that that feels good. That's something you can do up in your room in private alone or in the bathroom. Okay. So you really have to be clear and you have to, you, you do have to bring your language and your explanations down to their level. Totally, because they're in a concrete stage. You want to make sure that you are really giving them um, as detailed information as you can in as short amount of, of words as possible okay. because you lose them. So let's speak about words. When you're responding to their questions that come out of the blue while you're at the stove and thinking, oh, my God, how am I going to answer this one? <laughs> <laughs> well, what kinds of questions might you expect from children in, in this age bracket? That's such a great question because there's no answer. Okay. <laughs> meaning, meaning the sky is the limit. Um, I think we, you know, I sit with parents and I hear them say, well, my kid would never ask a question. And then I have the mom or dad who's giggling going, oh my gosh, you wouldn't believe the questions that my four-year-old asked. So the sky is the limit, but some of them, um, it also depends on what are they exposed to? And I don't mean in a bad way, but meaning, do they have an older sibling? Do they, um, are they watching television that might be geared to maybe a year or two or three older? So it depends on also what they're seeing. And then it could be questions, you know, very common questions like, why is my penis hard? Or when will I get hair there? Or how does, a very common one is, how does the baby get in there? They're very, you know, in that like, three to six year range, they're so interested about babies and pregnancy. And then they could get more complicated, even like, um, what is sexy? What is a blowjob? Because maybe they heard that on the Mm. kindergarten bus. And, you know, why do people have sex? I heard the word sex, you know, somebody having sex, what does that mean? So they could be, it depends on, again, the influences, internet, television, music, siblings, playground, bus, or even from their parents. And um, again, as we said earlier, this is why it is so critical to start young with that information so they don't hear things from others first. And honestly, people are kidding themselves if they think they won't hear it elsewhere. And so we don't want to leave that sexual development to chance because that's risky business. Okay, so now you have to walk us through some of those scenarios. You don't just sit down and suddenly give them, you know, the 101 on the topic. (laughs) No, you're right. And so often that's sometimes three quarters of the way through my workshops, one parent will look at me and go, okay, this is uh, so much information now, but where do I start? And, um, you know, it's not like you're suddenly going to sit down and have, quote, the talk. Some great ways with little ones is to start bringing picture books and reading books into 
the home that will help them start to get basic information. And I love, um, I love the Roby Harris book series. Um, the bo three books are It's Not the Stork, which is for four to seven-year-olds. It's So Amazing, which is for seven to 10-year-olds. And It's Perfectly Normal for 10 to 14. And what's great about them is, first of all, you can read them as a parent and they can help you as a parent become comfortable reading to your child about their bodies, saying the words mm -hmm. and reproductive processes and again, sex and family configurations. And then you're also teaching your child through these like fun illustrated books. And the one thing to remember about books though, when you're using them, one, they shouldn't replace the communication. They should be adjunctive. You know, they should be able to use with, and no one book will completely represent the colorful landscape that is a family. So filling in the gaps or making adjustments in areas to represent your family values and your family constellation. So I have a gay brother. So of course, from the time my children were tiny, we always talked about um, different family constellations and what makes a family is love. Um, I work with trans folks. My kids have always known um, about transgender folks. And so that type of stuff, if you um, are in the same gendered household, like that would be the landscape that's your home. And so the more that we help them understand what this is, when they see it in their world, it will have context and then they have accurate information about it from you. And so when you get a question, mm -hmm. are you allowed to have a timeout? Yes, thank you for bringing that up. Not only are you, oh, it's okay to have a timeout, it is really critical that you take it. And so it is okay to turn around to your child. And one phrase that I've used is, wow, that's a toughie and a goodie. And that's how, like I've said, that their question is always valuable. There's actually um, four steps that I use with parents to help them field questions. And one, the first most important piece is, validate the question. I don't care if they come to you and say, what is fill in the blank, a curse word. Mm -hmm. um, you say, wow, that's a really good question. You always validate everything. Cause if you say where, if you, I use the interrogation questions, if you say who, what, where, why they are going to pull back and they're going to know it's not really safe, that you're more interested in where you got that versus what they're actually bringing. So validate their question. Secondarily, then it's going to be really elicit what are they talking about so you want to say that's a great question tell me more about your great question you know what then you can you can sort of gently ask an interrogative question like you may say what brought that up today and then see what they give you then if you have an idea of what you think they're asking then you want to give them a short i say no more than two to three sentences which may be hard but less is more. Okay. Give them a few sentences and then you always follow up with, did that answer your question? Because that lets you check comprehension and seeing if they need more. If they say, well, yeah, but, and they add in another question, then you keep going. That is your barometer for my child is ready for more. Or if they just glaze over and look at you and go, can I have a cookie? You move on. Okay, great. We can always talk. You let them know. We can always talk about this another time. So you asked a specific question. I kind of went around it, but just to answer that piece about do I always have to have an answer? At some point, sure, but not in the moment. You can turn around from stirring your sauce when you want to throw up because of the question they've just asked <laughs> and say, you know, oh, honey, that's a good question. And right now, I'm making dinner. Can I answer it after dinner? Or if you don't know the answer, you might say, can I, can, can I read the book with you and we'll figure that out? 
The last thing you want to do is Google, though. <laughs> oh, <kid>. really? <laughs> it's probably what I would do. Yeah, because you might get an eyeful. Um, so it is okay to take a breath. And actually, clinically, it's really important because when we get a question from our child about sex that in, or sexuality or anything related to that, it's going to activate our amygdala. And when our amygdala, that primal brain, is activated, that <gasps> response, which mm -hmm. is kind of that fight, flight, or freeze place, what we're gonna do is our reasoning shuts down a little bit. And so the best thing that we can do is take some really deep, slow breaths. We need to bring our cortisol level back down. We need to ground ourselves. So we're no good to them until we can do that. So it's best to say, that's a really good question. We're gonna talk about it after dinner, okay? And just make sure that you cycle back around. Okay, I need to know, has one of your boys put you in a corner before? They haven't put me in a corner, but actually I did have one scenario that is really funny for me because it was one of those times where you feel the sex therapist should have known better. Mm -hmm. But my kids came, my older son came home and he was saying, he was doing something, throwing paper with his hands. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm making it rain. And I said, I, oh, I said, what is that? And he said, so-and-so was doing it at school with some money. And I said, oh, so we all started doing it because it was fun. We were throwing paper around. So my little one joined in and my husband came home. And, and he said, what are you guys doing? And we said, we all said in unison, we're making it rain. And my husband looked at me and said, honey, can I see you in the pantry? <laughs> <laughs> and went in the pantry and I just looked at him and I went, I have this weird feeling that this is something that I should know better. And he said, yeah. And he explained to me what it meant. And about, you know, that its roots are in um, throwing money at someone who dances. And I then had to, over time, explain that to my kids. Why it wasn't going to be, and here's that awful word. I didn't want to use the word appropriate in my explanations, but that's what it was. Like, why would this not be something that's okay to be doing, talking about, and having other adults see them doing that, even if it's with paper? And so I won't waste the time going into how I handled it, but I, I just was very direct, and really, I did it separately. My, my seven-year-old at the time, I did separately from my 11-year-old at the time because I felt they needed developmentally different answers. Okay. And the problem was solved. And the, you know what? They looked at me and went, oh, okay, and never said or did it again. And that's, that really showed me, again, how when we give kids context and explanation at their level of what they can understand, they get it. And they were like, oh, okay, no worries, you know, <laughs> okay. Because some parents would have gone a little bit off the deep end. They could have, or they would have freaked out, mm -hmm. or they would have not given, just said, that's inappropriate. And then your kid is left going, what, well, why? what is that? Yeah, why? What does that mean? You know, whatever. And then they may be, then they may be going and finding out for themselves and again, getting an eyeful. <laughs> so, well, and you learned something. See, doesn't matter. I, I learned something every day. <laughs> well, to me, what, what I am hearing from you is that starting the conversation when children are really young it makes it easier on the parent oh my gosh yeah you know you've established that baseline the foundation that you can build upon and you're not you know a nine years old suddenly realizing oh my god i've got to have the talk i've been dreading this because you've been talking all along that's right and so many parents think that you know they ask me what is too young and i often will say to them that you know there are often myths around that um, and that keeps them from getting the information that they actually need to understand and navigate their environment. And so 
Um, that one is a popular one. And I always say, when they say, is my kid too young? I always say, too young for what? Hmm. You know, are they too young to hear about boundaries and safety and their bodies and um, privacy and, you know, language? Are they too young for that? Because that's the building blocks of being ready to talk about sex with our children eventually. So once I put it like that, I think we, we have this fear because of our culture about the talk and what did it mean? Quote, the birds and the bees, all things that make no sense to kids. It's like, what does that mean? You know, it's actually not. It, it, this is a scaffolded, you know, um, you know, uh, situ program, sort of how we go. And then it just, it makes it so much easier. I had a mom in our community that after she attended my workshop, she went home and she started with the books and she talked to her kids and she, she hugged me hmm. in the school parking lot and just said, you know, do you realize how much less anxiety I have around my kids around this? And they are coming to me now with questions. She said, I think I was giving them an impression without even saying anything that they couldn't come to me because of my anxiety around it. Right. So that was great to hear. Well, we're going to have to wind up. So I'm wondering, is okay. there anything that um, I failed to ask you or that you would like to mention about how we can talk about sex and sexuality with the littlest kids? I think um, I just to, to wrap that up, we're coming around sort of the other way again, but because of the adults that come to my sex therapy practice and they share their early stories of shame or omission where their parents talked about nothing or fear around this topic when discussing sexual information that was given to them by their parents or religious figures or teachers or well-meaning adults, but that misinformation and shame-based sexuality education it just has long lasting, very sticky effects that play out in re relationship formation as they grow and even a worldview. And so a lot of parents choose silence over saying too much or speaking too soon or feeling they don't have a structure. So what I would say is that really just showing up for your kids on this topic, being able to start by getting books and just opening these conversations is really critical. And the earlier that we start, the better, because as I said, shame is a sticky business and it's one of the hardest things to work through in therapy and dealing with their own barriers to healthy sexuality and their own self-love because we are their first role models and we want to make sure that we are teaching through our example. Well, I certainly could have used you. My daughters are now in their early 30s, and uh, but I... I'm going to send the podcast to them because it's never too late, right? <laughs> no, thank you for saying that. I worked with a client who then opened up some conversations and she made some apologies to her 25-year-old daughter. Oh. And it just really moved their adult relationship forward. It was lovely. That's... No, it's never too late, Diane, never. <laughs> and my oldest daughter is now the mother of a one-year-old daughter. Oh, wonderful. So I will make sure to list the books that you mentioned on yeah. the Catching Health blog. And uh, there's so much more we could talk about. So you've already agreed that you're coming back. Yes, thank you. Yeah, next time we'll tackle how to talk to kids between the ages of 9 and 14. Then I think we're going to have to do one about teenagers. And then we're probably going to have to tackle adults. So I think we've begun a relationship here. Yes, we have. It's <laughs> lovely to be in relationship with you, Diane. <laughs> thank you. Thank um, you. Well, for more information about Jennifer and her services and her Raising Sexually Healthy Children workshops, you can visit her website. It's JenniferWiesnerHealthySexuality.com. I will spell her last name for you. It's W-I-E-S-S-N-E-R. 
And again, that's jenniferwiesnerhealthysexuality.com. I will include that link on the Catching Health blog. Thank you, Jennifer, for being here and sharing your wisdom. And I look forward to talking with you again. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Diane. I've been talking with Jennifer Wiesner about raising sexually healthy children. She is a certified sex therapist who practices in the beautiful state of Maine. And I'm Diane Atwood. You've been listening to the Catching Health Podcast. For more health reporting that makes a difference, be sure to check out my blog and other podcasts at catchinghealth.com.